0: First Kings chapter 20, last week we left off at verse 29, Ben-Hadad's army was soundly defeated by a very small army of Sumerians. And as you've learned, when we use the term Sumerians, we're referring to Israelites, particularly those in Samaria, a city. So the terms are used interchangeably in the Old Testament sometimes. But in this defeat, Ben-Hadad and some of his followers were able to escape. And a prophet warned Ahab that they would return, and they did. We learned about Satan, the enemy of not only of Israel, the nation, but more importantly, the enemy of the Israel of God, all the believers. And that's been our trend in studying the Old Testament, that as we learn about the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, we learn about the children of God and the kingdom of God. But we also rejoiced in the truth that Satan, his angels, and all unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire, never to return to bother us again. And while we rejoice in that truth, we also sorrow in that truth, because there are many to whom we preach the gospel, and will preach it again and again, who in the final analysis will not believe. We don't know who they are. We're going to preach until they take their last breath, or we do ours. And then someone else will preach it. But as far as Satan goes and his angels and all those who bother the kingdom of God, who molest us and pester us and bring torment to our lives, it's a great truth that they're going to be destroyed. And had Ahab done that with Ben-Hadad, he would have saved himself and the Sumerians and probably the rest of the world a lot of sorrow. But at the close of the lesson my wife reminded me that I had not read verse 28. And we don't skip verses at this church, do we? So let's read verse 28, verse 29, and then that will take us uh, right into our study, the new part of our study. For those of you just joining us online, we're in 1 Kings chapter 20. And I'm going to go to verse 28. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. So to Ahab the unrighteous, God had sent a prophet to tell him that the enemy who claimed God was God only of the hills, but not of the valleys, that God would deliver the Syrians into Ahab's hand once again. Now verse 30, but the rest, that's the rest of the Syrians, the rest fled to Aphek. Into the city, and there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left. And Ben Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. Our verse tells us that a wall killed twenty seven thousand fleeing soldiers. Think about that for a moment twenty seven thousand two hundred and thirty-two. That's almost a four-to-one ratio of Syrian soldiers to Israelites, to the Sumerians. But the fact that those Syrian soldiers fled after watching 100,000 of their fellow soldiers be killed tells us that they either realized or were afraid or powerful was at work here, because the math just wasn't adding up. What are the chances that 7,232 soldiers from anywhere in the world in hand-to-hand combat could beat 100,000 soldiers from the enemy? Mathematically, it seems impossible, at least improbable. But this unexplainable victory had to be attributed to something besides skill on the battlefield. And we know it was because we have the book that tells us it's so. We've learned not the book numbers, but about numbers themselves with a little n. They mean nothing to the Lord. Why is that a day it's as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day? It just is the same to God. And if all the world were against God he would still be victorious, wouldn't he? So what are a few hundred thousand Syrian soldiers to our God? They're a speck of dust. David said, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest visitest him? What is man? That's a good question. That's a rhetorical question. We're not much, and we're nothing without God. Now, look at this word wall. Let's go back to verse 30. Because it says a wall fell upon these 27,000 who escaped. The wall. Remind us of another truth. Seeing Syrians return to a place that had a wall, a place of security to them. If you wanted to hide from someone, just get behind a wall where they can't see you. And if it's a sturdy wall, then their arrows or spears can't get through to harm you. And these Syrians thought they were safe inside the city behind the wall. In fact, this very wall would be their downfall, wouldn't it? So what is the truth that we learn here? It's what God said in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 24. He said, can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? So from that, we learn that carnal man flees with his feet from battles that can only be overcome through faith. That's what carnal man does. He runs. Sometimes he runs with his feet. Sometimes he runs physically some other way. He runs to the bottle or to the drugs or to something else. And the Syrians thought they were running from the Sumerians. And if that's all they were running from, then going into a city and getting behind a wall should have been enough protection for them. But we learned this, you can't run from God. And that's who was fighting the Sumerians' battle for them. Not themselves, they were instruments, but it was God. Listen to a passage from Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 12, if you're taking notes. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. where the psalmist wrote this to the Lord, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say... Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be a light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. It's the same. The darkness and the light are both alike. This plight the Syrian army faced, and to which they succumbed, will be the same as the plight of all unbelievers who are now trying to run from God as though they may escape him. They don't grasp this truth that the psalmist grasped and that he put into these words. The unbelievers now are have been taking their refuge in humanistic religions or in their atheism which tries to hide from God by denying he exists. Kind of like the ostrich who sticks his head in the sand. He says, if I if I can't see anybody, they can't see me, and therefore I do not exist in their eyes, and they do not exist in my eyes. What a silly thing. And I don't know if the ostrich actually hides his head in the sand. I haven't seen that in the Bible, but uh, perhaps they do. But they're foolish. These people are foolish, just like the 27,000 Syrians who took refuge behind a wall that would eventually crush them to death. They were trying to run from God. Listen, all of us need a refuge, don't we? We all need a place to hide from the enemy. And that's why we're told in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 26, Proverbs 14, 26... In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. It's a guarantee. And a wall of condemnation will not fall upon us in that place of refuge. If people say, well, I'm a member of this particular church, and I feel like when I'm inside the doors of that church, nothing can hurt me. Well, an active shooter could. A tornado could. Those things have happened while people were in churches. Perhaps the church catches on fire or there's an explosion nearby. The walls of the church are no refuge at all if somebody wants to get you bad enough. But in the fear of the Lord, his children have a refuge. And these Syrians are just like the unbelievers. They run everywhere except to God to find a refuge. And then it says in the text in verse 30 at the end, and Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. Again, showing himself to be an unworthy military. Ben-Hadad tried to run from Israel, but he couldn't get away from the Lord. And did you notice that the 27,000 trusted in the wall, didn't they? They said, this is our salvation. And the wall crushed them. Ben-Hadad did not trust in the wall. He trusted in himself. In fact, he trusted in this inner chamber that he went into, a place where he found to hide, or he would have been crushed by the others behind the wall. And even now, now you think about this, Ben-Hadad's military has been soundly defeated By a lesser army. And yet he repented not. And then 27,000 of his soldiers have been crushed by a wall. And yet he repented not. And he went into an inner chamber. And he still has not repented. Verse 31. And his servants said unto him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Peradventure, he will save thy life. What had been hadad longed for now? You remember just a few verses back, He wanted everything that was pleasant in Ahab's eyes. He wanted his wives, his children, his gold, his silver, all that was pleasant in Ben-Hadad's eyes. In fact, I'm going to come get it myself. And now he says this about that king, or his servants say this about that king, about Ahab. Well, I've heard he's merciful. Probably was. But what did the Bible tell us about Ahab? He did more wickedly than all of the kings before him. Worse than Jeroboam. Worse than his father Omri. And yet Ben-Hadad's servant said, I've heard he's merciful. So Ben-Hadad longed not for victory now. And yes, he was a coward. But he had the wherewithal, that natural instinct to try to save his own life, even if he didn't worry about saving the lives of his soldiers and standing in front of them. Too bad he didn't stay in the battle with his soldiers, which shows us he valued his life more than theirs. That may be a supervisor, but that's not a leader. And the advice from Ben-Hadad's servants is revealing here. Notice they suggested putting sackcloth on their loins and ropes on their heads and asking King Ahab to spare their lives. What's missing again? The suggestion from Ben-Hadad's handlers that perhaps they should repent toward the Lord. Repent of their own ways. But they fled again. Let's look at verse 32. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. And he said, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. All right, we have some pronouns in there that could be confusing. So let's read that again and make sure we understand what the, who the pronouns are referring to. So they girded sackcloth on their loins. They and there referred to Ben-Hadad and his servants. And came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, that's to Ahab, thee is Ahab, let me live. And he, that's Ahab, said, is he, Ben-Hadad, yet alive? He is my brother. Okay. Now... The king who had not yet girded on his harness boasted as one that put it off. That guy, Ben-Hadad, now he girds himself in sackcloth, having laid his harness aside. And he's known as a servant here in verse 32. Thy servant, Ben-Hadad. So all of a sudden, he's gone from, in his own mind, a superior being to Ahab... He's now a servant to Ahab, all because he's in fear for his life. And he says, I'm paraphrasing here, let me live instead of I repent of my evil ways. And this is nothing more than groveling for a person's life. And I'm quite suspicious And I hope you are too. But I'm quite suspicious of anyone who makes a bunch of outward, sudden changes and a bunch of promises to serve God. It's not that I don't want people to change. It's not that I don't want people to serve God. I certainly do. But there's an old Spanish proverb, and I'll say it in English, between the cup and the lip, there's many a slip. (laughs) A lot of people make these promises. And if repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ is not that person's foundation, then all they're doing with these promises are speaking great swelling words into the air. They're empty. I've seen them before, and though I'm prayerful at the time that such people have really had a change in the inner man by salvation, a change that's wrought by the Spirit of God. I'm prayerful when they say I'm going to do this prize to learn that these people are counterfeits, that they're lying. And some of them are people we love, we know, our friends and family. So it's sad to see it happen. And if anybody says, well, God never really gave the Old Testament Gentiles a chance to repent, Well, they had plenty of them right here, didn't they? And that is a a lie, by the way. That's a lie by people who deny that the Old Testament is to be... They say, well, that was for them. You'll hear people say, well, uh, you have to be baptized back here to be saved. That's what some will say, the Campbellites and others. And if you ask them to show in the Old Testament where anybody was ever baptized... Well, that was the Old Testament. They completely separated it from the New Testament. And as you've learned, the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. Old and New Testament, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. But for you all, who've been here very long, that is Theology 101, and I'm glad it is. And you've moved on to the sophomore and the junior levels. The fact that you're in Sunday school means you're interested in going beyond the first principles of the oracle's God... Of God and going on to uh, more in depth, profound things, and we have them in front of us. I've seen people make public commitments in church, and they not only don't follow them, but sometimes they never even come back to church. So, this seeming repentance and sorrow that we're going to see Ben Hadad and his servants exercise is quite suspicious. And because I know the end of the story, having read it, I know it's fake. I look back in our text, and what you saw in verse 32 is the word ropes. They put sackcloth on their loins and ropes on their head. Interestingly, the word ropes is translated in other places in the Old Testament as the word regions, the word lots, L-O-T-S. That doesn't mean a whole bunch of. Cords, and surprisingly, the word sorrows. It's the same as the word rope. So the wearing of the rope on the head was an act of sorrow. Was Ben-Hadad really sorrowful? Was, were his servants really sorrowful? Or were they all just in fear for their life? Because there is a difference between being sorrowful and being scared. And based on the language here, it appears that Ben-Hadad's servants came to speak on behalf of Ben-Hadad first. You'll see that play out here in a few verses. And at that time, Ahab said about Ben-Hadad, my brother he said he is my brother. Which again tells me Ben Haddad was not in that I would have said, Thou art my brother, or you are my brother. But he said he is my brother. Because he asked there in verse thirty two if Ben Hadad was still alive. Is he yet alive? He is my brother. He was a brother not necess- not because they were blood brothers one was a Jew and one was a Gentile. But he was a brother because of a covenant. And that was the covenant that Ben-Hadad broke when he attacked Samaria. And apparently or Ahab had some brotherly feelings for Ben-Hadad in spite of this broken covenant. Or perhaps he called him brother thinking he could make use of it. After all, Ben-Hadad had access to an awful... a lot of people, a lot of wealth, and a lot of land. Verse 33, Now the men, now these again would be the men sent from Ben-Hadad. The men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him, from Ahab, and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go ye, bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. All right, go back to the two words, diligently observe. This is the only place in the Old Testament the Hebrew word is translated into diligently observe. Other times, it's translated as the word enchantment and divine. Not necessarily holy, but as a verb, to divine, to be able to discern something. And enchantment and divination were forbidden by the Lord. And it's found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26, if you're looking for where the Lord forbade divining or divination and enchantment. Ben-Hadad's men, in this verse, were looking for something King Ahab said on which they could hang their hats. Our King Ben-Hadad, before we bring him. Or maybe they were, and more likely, looking for words to twist. Oh, but you said this, you said my brother Ben-Hadad, you wouldn't ever kill your brother, would you? And these were the words they caught. Of all the things that Ahab may have said, the ones they caught were, thy brother Ben-Hadad, it says that right there in the middle of verse 33. It says, And did hastily catch it, and they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Those were the words for which they diligently observed, for which, from which they divined that there was some hope that their lives would be spared. And that's when Ahab said, Thy brother, or they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Now, at the end of the verse, having brought Ben-Hadad, It says, then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, we're in verse 33 still, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. Wow, is that scary or was there hope? I mean, what's he going to do to me when I get up in the chariot? I'm his enemy. And so am I going to get a hug or am I going to get my throat cut? He just doesn't know. Now, verse 34, it says, and Ben-Hadad said unto him, now let's stop right there, and I want you to notice that the name Ben-Hadad is in italics, and I don't think it was actually Ben-Hadad saying this, the translators, if you remember, the translators for this uh, translation of the Bible put those italic words in there to help us understand the flow of the language, to help us put it together, make sense of it, because you can't translate word for word from Hebrew into any language that for that matter. And so Ben-Hadad is supplied by the translators. The reason that I think this was actually Ahab speaking is as follows. I'm going to read the end of verse 33 and read right into verse 34 without putting Ben-Hadad's name in there. Just read what the actual translation is. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, that's Ahab, and caused him, that's Ahab, to come up into the chariot and said unto him, The cities which my father took from thy father I will restore. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic that it was not Ben-Hadad, but listen and and see if uh, this makes sense to you. Ahab's father was Omri and Omri was one of the kings who was selected by the people. Half of them took him, half of them took the other one as their king. And and Omri was a battler. He was a fighter. And he didn't go down with a good testimony. But these cities that he took from Ben-Hadad's father, Ahab said, I will restore them. And you might think, why in the world would Ahab give cities back to a king who is trying to take his city from him? This is, (laughs) have you ever noticed over the years in politics the Republicans who try to make friends with the Democrats, try to make them like them. I'm not saying that they should ever be unfriendly or discourteous, but to do things to try to make them like them. Well, maybe if we'll concede on this matter here that's before the legislature and vote a little bit on the liberal side, vote a little bit on the Democratic side, then they'll like us and they'll do other things for us. You know what? It never happens. All it does, you've heard that phrase, the, the camel gets his nose under the tent. What does he do? He finally lifts the whole tent up and turns it over because that's what camels do, apparently. Again, I've never seen a camel put his nose under a tent. But it makes a good expression for teaching. So here it looks like Ahab is trying to take a conciliatory tone, trying to make things better, establish a positive relationship with the one who just attacked him and tried to come take his cities from him. And he said, I will restore, and thou shalt make streets for thee in Damascus. Now, Damascus, the capital of Syria, was where Ben-Hadad was from. I'll restore the cities, and you make streets for yourself in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. We're in the middle of verse 34 there. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. It doesn't look to me like Ben-Hadad did any talking at all. It looks to me like it was all Ahab saying, Come up in the chariot, and all of verse 34 appears to be Ahab speaking. All right, well, I'll just let you chew on that. But at the end, there's no doubt in my mind that it was Ahab who said, I will send thee away. Ben-Hadad wouldn't send Ahab away, would he? Ben-Hadad was the low man on the totem pole in this conversation. So then Ahab said, I will send thee away. This is twice that God has delivered Ben-Hadad into Ahab's hands, and Ahab has let him go. If you'll remember this, it will help you understand the next few verses, which are going to seem mysterious if you study them out of context i counseled with a man a couple of weeks ago. I think maybe he was causing his own difficulty. That happens. I've been there. And I encouraged him to read the whole chapter before he tried to come to a conclusion about the interpretation of the three verses he was reading. So I hope he's doing that, and that's what we'll try to do in the case of the next few verses. So let's look at verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said unto his neighbor, In the word of the Lord, smite me, I pray thee. And the man refused to smite him. When you read a passage like that and think it's out of place, remember whose word you're reading. To us it seems out of place. You say, "Well, well, what does that have to do with, well, it does. God knows us at first glance. we sometimes refer to these passages or just single verses as parenthetical. In fact, sometimes they'll have parentheses around them, not here. But in either case, they are in perfect context, in perfect agreement with the verses that you're reading in the rest of the passage. So don't get worried when you see something like this. Just slow down, gear down a little bit, and and drive a little more slowly, and you won't miss... The truth is in here. In verse 35, it says, This prophet said unto his neighbor, In the word of the Lord. Now let's look at that. In the word of the Lord. In the word, those three English words are a single Hebrew word that are sometimes, or that word is sometimes translated as the word commandment. Commandment. So this prophet is telling his neighbor something by way of the Lord's commandment. That makes it non-optional. That makes it mandatory, doesn't it? And that command was, smite me, I pray thee. What man would beg another man to smite him? In any of the combat sports, the participants are taught to protect themselves. Boxers are told, keep your left up and tuck your chin. Football players wear helmets, and they're told, keep your chin strap buckled, keep your mouthpiece in. And it keeps them from sustaining a more serious injury than the ones they already sustained when they run into each other at high speeds like that. Nobody wants to be smitten. So why would this prophet ask his neighbor to do so? Now the verse says, At the end, the man refused to smite him. At first glance, it would seem that this neighbor was a rational, thoughtful, nonviolent person. He would have said, No, I'm not going to hit you. The offense here is not that the man didn't want to hit his neighbor, it's that he refused to obey the commandment of the Lord. Because what had the prophet done? It said he spoke to this neighbor in the word of the Lord, by way of commandment, in other words. And this neighbor said, or he refused to hit him. The prophet wasn't suggesting that the neighbor go around hitting people and saying, God told me to do it. God told me to do it. Boy, that'd be a gold mine for a bully or a, little, a big brother who likes to torment his little brother. God said, I could do it. No, God didn't. Now keep our context in mind here, and here's what I believe is the proper interpretation of this verse. God delivered a man into the hand of his neighbor, and he told the neighbor to smite the man. And the neighbor refused to do it. God delivered Ben-Hadad into the hand of Ahab, so Ahab could smite him, but Ahab refused to do it. Now that's where this is going. Verse 36, then said he unto him, that is, the prophet said to the neighbor, because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as thou art departed from me, a lion shall slay thee. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. The penalty for disobeying the Lord by disobeying the prophet was death. The wages of sin is death. As soon as the prophet and his neighbor parted ways, the neighbor was killed for his disobedience. But did you notice what the prophet said to him in verse 36? He said, Because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord. I like the way he put that. He didn't say, Because you didn't do what I told you, or because you didn't hit me, you're going to die he said because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord because that was the chief offense in fact that was the only offense we don't have to do what some stranger tells us to do and we certainly are not going to get in trouble for refusing to go around and hit people I think that's a good thing to not go around and hit people you might not like what you get back if you do But we don't have the authority to go against God's authority at no time. So I may be able to say, I'm not going to hit you. And I don't have to listen to what you say. But at no time am I correct in saying, I don't have to listen to God. I don't have to obey God. And that's what the prophet said was the main problem here. And as long as the prophet spoke the commandment of the Lord, spoke in the word of the Lord, then the neighbor was obligated to obey the prophet's words, which were God's words. That's the key right there. Had the prophet spoken in his own words, and we would have known it, then the neighbor would have still been responsible to obey God's words, but not the prophet's words. Now, what does that teach us? If somebody says, let's say they go to a church and and they're, they're involved in what I call pastor worship, and I didn't come up with that term. Pastor worship, where the pastor has a Bible, but he doesn't honor the Bible because if he did, he would never allow anyone to take his word over what the Bible says. So many do. Now let's say somebody's involved in pastor worship, and they tell you we have to do this at church, or we're not allowed to do this, and you say, well. But the Bible says otherwise. Well, we follow our pastor. Now, what have they done? They haven't followed the pastor because he spoke in the word of the Lord. They followed the pastor just because they think they're supposed to. And that's how cults get started and continue. A wise cult leader, and I mean wise like a serpent, will start with this right here. He will. Jim Jones in Guyana. He started with this right here. And then he set it aside quickly. And when he started with this, he didn't start with the intention to lead people close to God, but to lead them away from God and close to him. So this prophet had a great responsibility when he spoke to his neighbor in the commandment of the Lord, and that was to speak what God told him to say. And the book of Jude, my friend, is teaching the sheep how to recognize when such a prophet is not speaking by the commandment of the Lord. And I hope you're paying attention to it because it'll, especially the young believers. You may not have a great understanding of your Bible, you may have kind of the 101 freshman, sophomore level, and that's fine. We were all there. But we want you to have enough to know. When somebody is telling you something that's not in the Bible. You notice here the prophet's life was spared. Even though he was supposed to have been smitten by his neighbor. Verse 37. Now the prophet continues on. The the neighbor's dead. Then he found another man and said, Smite me, I pray thee. And the man smote him. So that in smiting, he wounded him. This man hit the prophet hard enough to wound him, but not enough to kill him or seriously maim him. The word wounded means bruised. So he put it on the prophet, didn't he? He hit him with a good one, or maybe more than one. And this is the obedience that God sought from Ahab. When God delivered Ben-Hadad into Ahab's hands, into his chariot even, Ahab should have smitten him even though he called Ben-Hadad his brother. Verse 38. So the prophet departed and waited for the king, by the way, and disguised himself with ashes upon his face. All right. Those verses, 35 through 38, that seem to be out of place are now going to make perfect sense, and we may not be able to get to all of it because of time, but we'll at least get our toe in the water. There in verse 39 or verse 38. The prophet was apparently known to Ahab, so he used ashes to disguise his face. There are some commentators who believe he actually put a veil on there. I don't see any scriptural warrant for that. I'm not saying he did or didn't. But the Bible tells us he put ashes on his face and disguised himself. So whatever he did, he did a good enough job to keep Ahab from knowing immediately who he was by looking at his face. Verse 39, And as the king passed by, he cried unto the king. And he said... Thy servant, that means I, thy servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me, and said, Keep this man. If by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. So the disguised prophet tells the king a story, tells Ahab a story. And I don't know if it was an actual event or a parable. I tend to think it was probably a parable. But it was used to get Ahab to pass a righteous judgment on the matter. And that would hold his feet to the fire for what would come next. The command given to the prophet, according to the prophet's story, was to keep fast, that is to hold fast or to guard a man who was delivered to him and to not let him go. And the penalty for that, for failure to do that, was death or a talent Of silver as a fine. And in verse 40, so the prophet is still telling Ahab this story. And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said unto him, So shall thy judgment be, thyself hast decided it. The prophet confesses that he got so busy doing other things than what he was entrusted to do, he let his guard down and the prisoner escaped. And this sounds awfully familiar to Ahab, or it should. Ahab's answer to this prophet was righteous. He said, so shall thy judgment be. In other words, because you let your prisoner get away, you're going to die or pay a talent of silver just like you said. Thyself has decided it. In other words, it's on you. You determined that it would happen. In every jail escape and prison escape I've ever worked, somebody on the inside failed to do his or her job. Sometimes many people failed to take proper security measures to keep that prisoner, that inmate, from escaping. Someone failed to search for, uh, or to search a prisoner, or to check a door lock, or walk the fence, look for loose or torn places in the enclosure. In every bank theft I ever worked, Someone failed to count the money drawer before giving it to the next teller. Or someone was alone in the safe with the money out on a table because their accountability partner was just too busy to come back there and do what is pretty much a boring task. After all, it gets boring doing those trivial things day after day. And when that slothful, errant employee was fired, even if they didn't steal the money, they were fired for not doing their jobs. We could have said to them, thyself hast decided it. You knew that. You knew what the order was. You knew what the consequences were for not following through. Thyself hast decided it. You knew you were supposed to stay in the room with the other employee, count the money with her, and maintain double accountability to prevent the theft or the mistake. Ahab gave the right judgment, but he shot himself in the foot, and we'll pick up there next week and see just how. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We thank you for the lessons it teaches us. And, Father, we thank you that it is the Spirit of God who takes the word of God and puts it in our hearts, in our inner man, and makes us better Christians. And, Lord, I pray that that has been done today, that all of the distractions and cares we brought in have been set to the side for a few moments And that your word means more to us than all of that. And I pray that for the next service as well, as we sing and pray and praise your name, as our pastor brings the lesson, that we would be attentive to it. We'd not let our minds wander and drift. We'd not consider other things being more important or even equally so. And Father, we're just in awe of what you've done for us